Welcome to the Consider the Dog podcast. In today's episode, I will be answering questions from our members covering a broad range of topics such as correcting excessive nipping, reducing fixation towards small animals, dogs that resource guard their owners, establishing personal boundaries, and more. Let's dig right into it. Just like our relationships with other humans in our lives, our relationships with our dogs are dynamic and complex. I believe that in order for those relationships to flourish or to find resolution when those relationships become strained, we must attend to them thoughtfully and with care. Welcome to the Consider the Dog podcast, created from archived recordings of live sessions where our members get to ask their most burning questions to some of the greatest practitioners of canine behavior. I'm your host, Tyler Muto. I hope you enjoy this episode. And remember, if you want to join the conversation live, you can visit us at considerthedog.com. All right, I'm going to start looking at these questions and we'll just start diving in and make use of the hour that we have together. So uh, probably just kind of go in order unless we start to get a lot of repeat themes and then I might jump around a little bit. So working with Sage's reactivity and making progress. First question is how to handle her reactivity when she sees a dog in the distance. She's less reactive when we're in the neighborhood where we see dogs closer to us. In the distance, she's hard to get off fixation. My goal is to be able to take Sage with us when we go hiking. Dog in the distance is often part of the hiking experience. Um, there's some other text here. If you guys, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing. If you guys want to see the whole question, it's in the Facebook group. Um, she has to do with her drives and whatnot. And some of the feedback she got from her other trainer she's been working with. Um, she says she switched the squirt bottle and spatial pressure. Um, so I guess my question is, um, like, what's the difference that you're seeing when you're working with her and she sees a dog at the distance? Um, if you, if you do the same techniques that you're doing, you know, when you're passing dogs close by, what is she doing differently? How is it different for you? Um, how is your experience different? You know, when she, uh, the dogs are at a distance versus close up, because ultimately it, it should be, you know, the same, um, that the main challenge with dogs at a distance, a lot of times has more to do with the fact that you have to sort of rinse and repeat what you're doing a lot because there's more time involved there's a lot of like buildup. There's a lot of lead up as the dogs are approaching. Whereas if the dogs are close, you know, you do whatever technique you're doing a couple of times. And before you know it, the dog is gone. Um, whereas when they're coming from a distance, you know, sometimes there's several minutes before the dog is, has passed you by. So it just takes a lot more repetition. A lot of times, um, you know, using, um, like a recall to also sort of redirect her focus away from the trigger can be really helpful as well. But ultimately I'm, I'm kind of curious as to what sort of differences you are seeing, um, when you work her, you know, when you're working with her and there's dogs at a distance. So I'm going to kind of wait and, and I'll keep my eye and see, um, if you can kind of add some comments there, because it can be a little bit like, to me, it's the same. Like, I don't have any, I don't have any different any different trick, right? Like what works at a distance works, you know, with dogs in closer range. Like I said, the, the key thing is often just to rinse and repeat. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to jump to another question. I'll keep an eye on the chat and see if you can post some additional commentary there. Um, okay. So Marcy says my dog mouths terribly when he's excited, when you walk in the door, first thing in the morning, et cetera, flurry of small nips. What's the best way to stop this? I mean, honestly, I, I would just find a sort of like a Goldilocks correction, right? What I mean by Goldilocks correction is um, something that's not too severe and um, also not too wimpy, right? So if, I look at it like this, right? If you were to put a young dog around a more mature dog and the young dog were to do that kind of stuff, the more mature dog is, is very likely to just give a quick little nip um, not intending to hurt, harm, or injure just, uh, you know, a nip to communicate that like, they're not going to tolerate that kind of behavior. And so we're basically looking for how can we sort of emulate that? Like, obviously we're not going to nip at our dog, but what else can we do that might elicit the same reaction, right? If you, if you watch an older dog do that to a younger dog, the younger dog will often be like, Whoa, like it'll catch them off guard. It, it definitely has a reaction, right? So, um, some of that's going to be, 
um, dependent on your dog's temperament and what they're sensitive to. And, and we've talked a lot in the past about spending some time um, learning about what kind of corrections work well for your dog, because not every dog is the same in that regard. Um, some dogs respond really well to one correction and, and not another. And then you might have another dog that's the complete opposite. So one thing though, depending on the age of the dog, um, I do find that like a, a leash correction and, and particularly with a prong collar can be very effective because that does sort of simulate a bite from another dog. Like it's, you know, the neck area, which is usually where the other dog would sort of target a nip like that. Um, but again, like it could be a sound based correction. It could be a squirt bottle. It could be just using spatial pressure. Um, you know, anything that makes it an aversive experience for your dog can usually nip that problem in the bud pretty quickly. And, and the reason you can nip in the bud pretty quickly is because it is a behavior that other dogs will correct for. And generally when we're dealing with other, um, when we're dealing with behaviors that other dogs will correct for, it's, it's pretty, um, easy for our dog to kind of put two and two together, as opposed to like, when we're going to use a correction for something like obedience, you know, where we ask the dog to sit and stay. And then if they don't, we want to correct them for that. Usually with that kind of thing, we'd want to do some prep work because nowhere in nature, does one dog walk up to another dog, ask them to sit and stay and then like nip them if they don't, that just doesn't, that that's, that's a completely human concept, a completely man-made behavioral construct. Right. So when we, when we're dealing with those kinds of things, we do want to be a little bit more um, careful about how we go about correcting. But anytime we're dealing with a very natural behavior that other animals would also be correcting for other animals would also be disciplining for, um, we, we can usually get away with a little bit more. Like we don't have to be as precise. We don't have to do a lot of conditioning. Um, usually they get the concept pretty clearly because it's somewhat natural for them. And this goes for mouthing, jumping, you know, things like that, mounting, um, all behaviors that, that dogs correct each other for when they get excessive. And so, um, you know, it's just a matter of finding the correction that, that your dog says, you know what, like that's, I don't want to do that again. That's not worth it for me. And it might take a couple tries, but it shouldn't be like over and over and over and over and over again. It should be something that you start to see, uh, effects of relatively quickly, right. You start to see movement in the right direction relatively quickly. So, you know, if within three to five reps, you're not seeing the behavior, sort of reduce in either frequency or intensity, then it's probably not the right correction. Or, um, I mean, you can sometimes adjust intensity of the correction, but, um, you know, again, we want to be careful about only thinking about intensity. Like this is something that I, that I see even a lot of professional trainers, um, do sometimes, um, like, especially when I was teaching seminars when I was traveling around the world and, and doing seminars on a regular basis, I would regularly have people come that would be struggling with a behavior. And, you know, they had been going to a trainer and the trainer's only advice to them when they continued to struggle was to increase the intensity of their correction. And while sometimes intensity is an issue, more often than not, intensity is not going to solve the problem. It's just that it's not the right kind of correction. It's not a correction that that dog is sensitive to. And so we, you, you would end up using a far more severe correction than you would need to, if you just found a different type of correction, found what your dog is more sensitive to, because just like people are sensitive to different things, dogs are sensitive to different things. So I would, I would just try a few different things, find something that your dog finds aversive. And then when your dog starts nipping, just say no in a nice firm voice, follow through with the correction, a little bit of, you know, assertive body language, spatial pressure can be helpful there as well. But, um, but I don't think you need to get like incredibly technical with that kind of thing. Um, and you know, again, some of this is also contingent on, like you say, my, my pup. So I don't know how old the dog is. Like if the dog's only like, you know, three months old, then I'm going to be a little bit more tolerant, right? If, if we're talking about a six month old dog or, a, you know, 10 month old dog, then I'm definitely just going to find a correction that works. If it's a really young dog, if we're talking two months, three months old, even four months old, I might do a fair amount of redirection when the dog's excited. So I'm going to keep something nearby that I know I can redirect that drive onto. 
you know, the, the problem, um, and this is going to go off on a sort of a different tangent for a minute, but the problem with a lot of um, nipping is it's actually coming from the dog's desire to express prey drive, right? And so we have to remember prey drive is all about chasing and grabbing and catching. And so when the dog starts nipping at our hands or at our pant legs, a lot of times what we start doing is we pull our hands away, right? Or we're walking through the house and our legs are moving. And as the dog's nipping, our legs keep moving away. And that's exactly what prey does. So the more the dog's nipping and we react to it in that way, we're actually continuing to stimulate that prey drive. And so if I'm, if I want to sort of blunt the prey drive, a lot of times what I'll do is like, if the dog's nipping at my hand, I might even push my hand into their mouth more. Um, sometimes with young dogs, I'll even like grab over the top of their snout and I'll kind of push their own lip under their tooth so that if they bite down, they're biting into their own lip, which can also add a little bit of an aversive experience. But then what I'll do is I'll keep something nearby a toy that's good for stimulating prey drive. And usually this is going to be something that I can make move a lot. So not a bone, not a rawhide, something like a ball or a tug toy, something floppy. When I raise puppies, I usually just use like old rags because, you know, the dogs will tear through them and they're just dirt cheap and I don't have to worry about it. And it's not something that I leave out for the dog all the time either. It's something that I keep on hand. I like something like old rags because I can have a dozen of them in different areas of the house. And so when the dog starts mouthing, again, I can kind of push my hand into their mouth. So I'm not, I'm not stimulating more prey drive. And then over here in their peripheral vision, I might wiggle around a little rag or a tug toy and see if I can trigger that predatory drive onto that thing. And remember, you want the tug toy to simulate prey. So you want to make it jump away from the dog as they're trying to chase it, right? Dogs coming near it, tug toy jumps away because we want to be stimulating that prey drive with the toy and directing it onto the toy instead of pulling our hands away and continuing to direct that prey drive onto our hands, if that makes sense. So with a younger puppy, I'm going to employ a strategy like that more often and just try to really, you know, recognize that they have this, this drive that they need to express They're teething, they're mouthy, they have all this excitement. And let me just direct that onto appropriate things and make sure that they, they kind of learn that like my hands are not going to be a fun thing to nip on. Right. So it could be like the dog starts nipping my hand. I say, no, I give a mild correction. Again, it could be like pushing their, their lip underneath their tooth. So they bite their own lip. It could be a little bit of a leash correction or a little squirt bottle. Um, but I don't want to do anything that's going to, that's going to stimulate the prey drive. I don't want to pull away really fast. And right after I say, no, I'm going to try to stimulate the prey drive onto something more appropriate a more appropriate toy and then engage with play with them. Now there will be times, especially with young dogs, because they tend to want to engage this kind of thing a lot, uh, depending on the breed, of course, there will be times where they get in that mood and they're pulling on your pant legs and your shirt sleeves and your hands and your slippers and everything else. And you can't engage, right? Like you're in the middle of doing stuff. Maybe you're on a zoom meeting. Maybe you're trying to get dinner ready for your family um, sorry, I got to adjust my heat vent here. It's blasting on me in my home office. And it's very warm in here at the moment. Um, so, um, you know, there's going to be times where you can't engage with them. It's just not appropriate. And there's nothing wrong in those moments of just saying like, sorry, pup, and kind of scooping them up and putting them in a crate or putting them in an X pen. And it doesn't have to be a punishment, right? Like you don't have to be like, no bad dog in your crate. It's just, Oh, got to do crate time right now. And you can put them in there, give them a, give them a tree, give them a bone. doesn't really matter, but there's nothing wrong with sort of choosing your battles with this kind of thing also. And um, just making sure that at the very least, if it's a moment where you're not in the best position to deal with it in the most appropriate way, that um, you at least aren't allowing the behavior to sort of self-reinforce or you're not allowing yourself to then become frustrated and then start yelling at your dog or whatever, or doing anything that might, you know, make you feel less than great about the direction of your relationship. Right. So hopefully that's helpful. Let's see what else we got here. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Okay. So let's see here. So Mandy's got a couple questions here. So tips to build and train play drive in a dog who's timid and prefers to hide versus engage. And then two best practices for potential foster family. If existing dog is timid, um, high drive Vizsla, she's weird. So I'm, I'm assuming it's the high drive Vizsla that's, that's timid. So as far as, um, building play drive, um, 
you know, so first off, we have to recognize that like some dogs just come sort of built in with different levels of desire to engage in, in play. And there are dogs out there that it's just like, it's just not their thing, right? Like chasing balls or playing tug of war is just not their thing. And you could spend all, all day, week and month trying to build it up and it's not going to be the most productive use of your time. Um, but if it is a dog that does like to play in, in certain contexts, you know, um, I think it's just a matter of, of, um, baby steps, you know? Um, so when we're trying to build plane drive, like, so, so I guess, first of all, what I would say is, um, when we talk about building play drive and toy drive, right. We have to have something to sort of start with, right. So if the dog is like, has never shown the inclination to want to play with a ball, then like it, it may not be the best you know, strategy. Right. Um, uh, but if the dog, again, sometimes likes to play with the ball and we're trying to build on that. And that's a little bit more of something that you can work with or sometimes likes to play tug, um, but kind of fizzles out. And so usually when we're trying to build drive, it's a matter of short and sweet. We engage the dog in a little bit of play and then we want to call it quits before the dog does. So we want to end the game while the dog still wants to engage in more play so that we're leaving them unsatisfied and a little bit frustrated. And there's an old saying in the sport dog world that frustration builds drive. And it's a pretty accurate um, statement, right? So that's really what we're working with is, you know, going for those little baby steps, not trying to play too much and too hard all at once, but finding something that starts to stimulate a little bit of play behavior in the dog, get them going a little bit and then stop. Right. And then kind of leave it alone for a little bit and then go at it again later. I had a young pup at one point, um, a young Malinois that I raised and I eventually sold as a working dog. And when he was young, his play drive wasn't great. And I used to actually set a timer on my watch and I would go out and I would do like, um, at first I would do like one minute play sessions and that goes really, really fast. Right. Which is why it's important to just set a, a watch, but I'd go out one minute and then we're done. And then a few hours later, we'd go out one minute and then we're done. And then eventually it would be two minutes and then eventually, you know, five minutes. And we just slowly built on it as the dog's desire to play increased. Um, so that's, that's a lot of what, what I do for building drive. The other thing too, is having them watch other dogs play, especially if they're restricted or restrained in some way. So for instance, with that same dog, sometimes I bring them out to the protection field where we used to train protection with our decoy. And I would bring his kennel out to the field and I'd leave him in the kennel and have him basically observing other dogs working. And he would get so frustrated in the kennel because he was seeing the other dogs running and playing and this and that. And we would just let him get really, really frustrated. And kind of when we felt like he was really at his peak, the decoy would go over to him and we'd pop the kennel door open and he would go after the decoys. You know, he was using a little rag at that point and few minutes of, of biting and tugging. And then I'd run him off the field while he's still, you know, trying to get back and do more play. And again, just building on that kind of slowly. Um, as far as best practices for potential foster fam, if the existing dog is timid, just taking it slow, giving them space. I think a lot of people try to integrate the dogs too fast. Um, if you, if you scroll through the Facebook group, um, one of our members, Bo Jung, um, recently kind of went through this. She got a new puppy and was having issues kind of assimilating her new puppy with her old dog. And there was a lot of really good advice on that thread. And she did a good job. It sounds like of taking it slow. She's had some good progress now of her dogs able to interact together. But I think, you know, just allowing that decompression period of, you know, even two to three weeks of a decompression period where the dogs don't actually have to interact with each other at all. They're either doing crate and rotate or they're separating the house with gates. Um, so the dogs aren't having to, 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 uh, you know, interact. And then maybe if anything, just doing walks together with the dogs to help them get used to each other is probably the best way to go about it. But ultimately kind of the, the key thing is just to take it really slow is really to take it slow and to not rush things and to let the existing dog tell us when she's ready, right? Let her have some sovereignty and some choice in what's going on. And I think that's kind of the best practice right there. Okay. So, uh, Rachel asks how to figure out if a dog is overstimulated or understimulated as both behavior have similar sim symptoms. Um, you know, I think you just have to look at what's going on in the life, right? Like I've had clients whose dogs were struggling in our daycare 
at Canine Connection who like, when we talk to the owner, it's like, they're like, yeah, every day we go out for like, you know, two hours of jogging and then we go to the dog park and the dog goes to doggy daycare and we do this. And it's like, well, maybe we need to back off a little bit. So I think a lot of times that's going to be more about looking at the dog's actual lifestyle and kind of making a judgment call rather than looking at the behavior itself and the symptoms. Um, it's a little bit more about getting to know the personality of the dog and, and how much is kind of going on. I mean, if, if the dog's getting a reasonable amount of stimulation, um, and this is having behavior issues. It, it may not be a stimulation issue in general. I'm assuming that's kind of what you're getting at here when you say overstimulated or, or understimulated. I'm assuming you're kind of talking about, um, you know, the dog's actual like day-to-day activity level. Um, so, you know, I think that's more of a, more of a kind of get a general feel for the dog's temperament and get a general feel for what's going on in their life. Um, and sometimes it's, it's, you know, Sometimes, you know, you're not going to solve whatever problem is going on by finding the magic amount of stimulation, right? So like, we just sort of look for like a reasonable amount of activity so that we know the dog's, you know, probably not overly frustrated, but then a lot of times solving whatever problems we're having is going to involve other things, right? Um, so, but it's pretty rare that I encounter dogs that are overstimulated, um, other than like, there are some dogs that go into like, um, certain daycare type settings can be really chaotic, uh, like lots of dogs per group and, and not a lot of boundaries and rules and quiet time. And while some dogs really thrive in those environments, um, there are other dogs where that's going to be overwhelming for them. But I think if we're looking again, if we say, Hey, the dog's having issues in this environment and we look at the environment, I think we're going to be hard pressed to say that this is an issue of the dog being understimulated. Right. Because if we look at the environment, it's an extremely stimulating environment. We might say that it, uh, it's not as, as much structure as the dog needs. Like maybe this dog needs an environment that's going to give them a little bit more focus and discipline. But that's different than saying they're overstimulated or understimulated, if that makes sense. And I apologize. I'm kind of flying through these questions quick. Like I said, I'm, I'm trying to get two things and not having Jake here to sort of help me out makes it a little bit of a different experience on my end. Um, so I want to kind of make sure that I'm, I'm, uh, looking at everything that's popping up here. Okay. Let me just scroll through and make sure that I don't have any follow-ups, um, from the other stuff. So, okay. I'm going to touch back on the first question here from Sage. Um, so she says, uh, this had to do with the dog that, uh, she was saying, you know, how do I deal with my dog when she's reactive and other dogs are at a at a distance, the dog does better in like a neighborhood where they encounter dogs at pretty close range. But if they're in an open space, like a hike and the dogs are from far away, it's a bit more of a struggle. Um, so fixation is just, she says that the fixation is more intense at a distance. She tries repeating and recalling. They continue to walk forward towards the dog bubble and turning away is not always an option. Um, so I guess I would say, you know, I mean, if you're on a hike and you've got that much distance, you should have plenty of room to kind of move towards the dog and move away. So I would look at it as like a pendulum thing. Like if you don't have, if the dog's at that far of a distance away and you say bubbling is not an option, well, then just move a little bit closer to the dog and then bubble away. Right. So even though moving closer might be too much in the beginning, but you've got to give yourself the room behind you to kind of work with. Um, but it's, it's a little bit of a tricky question, Sage, I have to be honest, um, without kind of seeing exactly what's going on and seeing what you are doing. Um, it'd probably be like uh, super helpful, honestly, if you could even capture some video of it and post it on the Facebook group so that I can take a look and other, other members of the group can take a look and maybe be able to offer some suggestions because sometimes there's just little technique tweaks that we need to make, um, you know, as far as what you are currently doing to make things sort of snap into place. Um, but it's, it, yeah, it's otherwise a little bit of a tricky question to, to kind of get a feel of what's going on there. Um, okay. Jamie asks, um, dog gets very stimulated towards small animals, squirrels, mostly to keep his attention. Should I just try to engage more, try petting him in a down and he just fixates, shakes and cries. Yeah. So petting him in a down is probably not a good strategy for that kind of thing. So Oh, putting him in a down. I don't know why I read, read petting him. Um, I guess that makes a little bit more, more sense than petting him in a down. Uh, my apologies there, but still, yeah, putting him in a down. So anytime a dog is really fixated and over aroused, 
making them stationary generally just allows them to load up even more. So we don't really want to just put them in a sit or put them in a down, right? That's generally not going to be a helpful thing. So um, there's a couple of ways that you can deal with this. Again, if you watch through some of the videos, like when we start dealing with the food claiming exercises and the walking behind, remember that a lot of it, a lot of that exercise has to do with helping our dogs understand how we want them to react in the face of something stimulating. So when there's something interesting, here's what I want you to do. And we're using a lot of movement in order to accomplish that, right? Uh, we're using a lot of spatial pressure, et cetera. So that would be a good place to start. The other thing you can do, and this is a little bit more of like, um, like, uh, you know, Brian Agnew talks about this kind of stuff a lot. We certainly, um, use these kind of techniques a lot at our training center as well, especially when we are doing e-collar training, but putting the dog on a, on a longer line. So again, they're not restricted because the restriction is going to create more frustration. And just like we said earlier, frustration creates more drive. So putting them on a longer line and like, if there's a squirrel in front of us dropping back and then using the e-collar to help recall the dog away and doing that with some repetition, kind of like a pendulum swing and actually Sage, this kind of goes for you too. When you're on, when you're on those hikes, right? If you've got your dog on a long line and there's a dog in a distance, think of it like a pendulum. You move towards the dog, drop back and recall away, move towards the dog, drop back and recall and do this really in a smooth motion, like not a lot of pause in between each repetition, just forward, back, forward, back. And unless the dog, like when you turn and go back, the dog is like absolutely glued to you. They turn immediately right with you. Like if when you turn and go back, any space is opening up between you and your dog on that line, that's when you start applying the e-collar stimulation and using the recall to bring your dog back to you. But when you do that over and over again, a lot of times what happens is the dog starts to go, you know what? Like, I think I need to just focus on what you're doing because you're moving kind of erratically and I need to focus on following you, not focus on following or tracking this other dog or fixating on this squirrel. Um, so those kind of techniques can work really well also, but I would, I would encourage you to, especially if you're not using an e-collar, I mean, if you're using an e-collar anyway, if your dog's already e-collar trained, then that's a really easy thing you can start to implement. You know, it's just a, a sort of pendulum swing behavior, right towards the squirrel, drop back, recall away, right towards the squirrel, drop back, recall away, and just do it over and over and over again. And kind of find that sweet spot on the e-collar where it just gets the dog's attention. The other kind of um, note I'll make on that is depending on how you condition the e-collar. Like I know me personally, I often favor holding the continuous button on the e-collar, but sometimes when a dog is very fixated, we can get their attention a little bit more easily by tapping on the e-collar. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Like if I were to gently rest my hand on your shoulder, that's a little bit easier to ignore versus if I use the same sort of amount of pressure, but I tapped repeatedly on your shoulder, that's going to be a lot harder to ignore right? The tapping is going to get your attention, especially if you're very focused on something. So a lot of times when I'm doing this kind of technique, again, this pendulum swing technique, I'm going to use a tapping on the e-collar that'll often allow me to, um, keep the levels lower ultimately. Right. So, um, yeah, just, just kind of keep that in mind. But if you're not using e-collar, I would definitely encourage you to, um, start working with the food claiming exercise, start working with the idea of focusing on that pattern, right? What do I want you to do in the face of something stimulating? And we want to allow the dog to make the choice of moving forward. If they move forward, we have a correction that we've already established works with the dog and a correction that ideally causes the dog to move away, right? And then we're reinforcing anytime the dog hangs back away from the stimulus and especially reinforcing any reduction of arousal. So instead of focusing on a specific behavior or a specific command, I should say, we're focusing very specifically on the distinct choices the dog can make when they see a squirrel, right? When you see a squirrel, you have these choices. You can either just hang out where you are you can move forward or you can move away. Moving forward is going to get a correction. Hanging back and moving away is going to give a reward, right? Um, watching the reactivity rehab 
video that we have too, the webinar, um, all of those concepts and techniques can be applied to this situation as well. So I would, I would um, take a look at that as well if you haven't already. Hey listeners, just a quick reminder, these podcasts are created from archived recordings of live sessions where members of our community can ask questions and interact with our instructors in real time. If you'd like to be part of the discussion, visit considerthedog.com and use code CTDPODCAST to get 50% off your first three months. That's three months for $10 a month, and you have access to not only these live sessions, but also our library of hundreds of exclusive videos and courses on dog behavior. Again, visit considerthedog.com and use code CTDPODCAST. Let's get back to the show. Um, Pam says, does using an e-collar just stop the behavior in the moment or does it train the dogs so you can stop using it? So I think that some of that depends on what you're using the e-collar for, um, and how you're using the e-collar ideally. So, if we're, so let's back up here. Um, if we sort of just dissect the question a little bit, Pam. Um, so again, the question does using an e-collar just stop the behavior in the moment or does it train the dogs so that you can stop using it? So because we're talking about stopping a behavior, we're going to presume that what you're asking about is using the e-collar as a punisher, right? And when we say punisher, bear in mind the behavioral definition of punishment is simply anything that causes a behavior to be, you know, reduced in frequency or intensity, right? Um, and so that's kind of what we're talking about here. Now, bear in mind that if we're using the e-collar as a punisher, and the definition of punishment is to make a behavior reduce in frequency or intensity, then the, then by definition, the e-collar should be self-limiting, right? So if the behavior is becoming less, then we should be ultimately using the, the e-collar less. If that's not happening, then we have to recognize that what we're doing with the e-collar doesn't, doesn't qualify as punishment anymore. And at that point, we're, we, we may be interrupting the behavior, but we're not actually correcting or punishing the behavior. And there's nothing wrong with using an interrupter as long as we understand it for what it is as an interrupter. But most certainly e-collars can be used as punishment. We do use them as punishment. Um, I caution people that if they're going to use an e-collar and try to use it as punishment to please get the guidance of a professional, because if you just take one of these things and slap it on the dog and wait for them to do the behavior you don't like, and then nail them with a correction, um, there is the potential for some side effects that are less than desirable. And you can make your dog um, fearful of things you didn't intend to and create a lot of confusion and whatnot. So definitely a little bit of care has to be taken when using an e-collar as punishment, but we absolutely can use e-collars as punishment. And if you're using it as punishment, and if you understand how to use punishment properly, and bear in mind, the proper use of punishment is independent of, of tools, right? Punishment is a concept. The tools are just what we use to sort of manifest that concept, right? So if we're using punishment properly, then eventually we should not need to use the e-collar. That does not mean that you won't have to use it ever again, right? Like, especially depending on the behavior, if it's an instinctual behavior or a very innate behavior, it's most likely going to require some amount of management. Um, hopefully it's not that frequent of management, but it probably will require some management um, somewhere down the line. If it's a learned behavior, then a lot of times we can eliminate the behaviors entirely to the point that we don't need the e-collar on at all. Um, so just keep that in mind as well. So again, it depends on the way we're using the tool. It depends on the kind of correction. Like for instance, let's just say we wanted to um, use an e-collar to stop an intact dog from trying to mount females in heat, right? You're probably never going to get to a point with that where you've corrected the behavior so much that you never have to use the e-collar again. It's too much of an instinctual innate behavior for dogs. And even um, there was a term that was coined by Skinner's disciples, um, Miriam and Keller Bre uh, Breland, Breland, I'm not sure how you pronounce the last name. Um, they called it instinctual drift where like, no matter how much they conditioned something in sort of a controlled setting outside of the controlled setting, if the, if they didn't have restrictions in place, the animals would, would, would drift towards their instinctual behaviors. So we need to sort of be mindful of that. 
you know, but if we're talking about something like, you know, counter surfing or digging in a garbage can or something like that, if you're using punishment properly, if you're using the e-collar properly, you should get to a point where you can stop using it. And this also applies for using the e-collar as negative reinforcement. So using it to um, make an existing command or behavior more resilient and more consistent. Similarly, you should be fading the use of that tool over time. Doesn't mean that you'll never need to tune up the behavior or brush it up ever in the future, right? Like dogs aren't machines. So they're just like us, you know, learning can sort of wax and wane through time. Um, but you should be able to, to significantly reduce the amount that you're using it if you're using it properly. So um, I hope that answers the question. Okay. Let's see here. All right. So Tim, Tim says, uh, what's going on, Tim? Uh, what are some protocols you do for a dog that resource guards one person in their household when the other member of their household approaches? Okay. So a couple things here. This is a good question, Tim. Um, so first off, a lot of times when a dog is resource guarding a person, first and foremost, we want to look at the relationship between the dog and that person. Because a lot of times there's a bit of an unhealthy relationship there. So um, we want to be, we want to look at that, right? We want to look at, you know, how are this person and dog interacting in the 99% of time when the dog's not necessarily resource guarding, right? Like, is the dog really clingy with that person? Does the dog invade that person's personal space a lot? Um, does that person routinely behave in a manner that the dog might interpret as submissive? Um, you know, just, you know, essentially what's going on with that person where the dog thinks that the person is a possession, right? Um, because most certainly I can, I can basically guarantee that the, the dog probably does not view that person as, as, you know, sort of more dominant in the hierarchy of things. Right. And that's something that we want to address. And there's a lot like, you know, talking about how to like, how to fix those kind of hierarchical issues is sort of a topic in and of itself, but that's something that we want to look at. The other thing that we want to look at is, you know, what's going on in the moment of the aggression, right? So is the dog like on a couch with the person? Um, is it just the dog could be across the room, but if like, you know, my wife comes near me, all of a sudden my dog runs over and gets in between us kind of thing. Um, cause if it's something like the dog's on a couch, for instance, then, then we're going to also say like, this dog shouldn't be allowed on furniture, right? This dog clearly is abusing the privilege of being allowed on our furniture. So we're going to remove that privilege. And that's, that's, you know, kind of the, the, from a, from a protocol standpoint or from a, what do we do in the moment standpoint? We want to make sure that we have the ability to remove the dog from the resource. So similarly, like when we're doing resource guarding with a dog who guards food, one of the first things that we want to be able to do is say, Hey, can we call the dog away from you? Right. Do we have the ability to ask the dog to stop eating? And have we conditioned the dog to respond to whatever signal we're going to use and have the ability to, to sort of remove that. Right. And so that would give me the ability to start to control the dog's access to the resource being the person. The other thing that could be super helpful is like a really solid um, place command. And then you can start to do some drills. So for instance, let's say that my dog, anytime my wife comes to approach me, my dog guards me and shows aggression towards my wife. What I might do is condition a very strong place command, um, put the dog on place and then do drills of having my wife approach me and we hug each other. If the dog stays on place, I reinforce that, right? And start to do some almost like counter conditioning protocols there as well, but use the place command to control the dog's behavior and limit their ability to show aggression in that regard. Um, but again, I'm just going to go back to saying that like nine times out of 10, when you see this behavior, there's a, there's a, there's something very unhealthy or toxic in that relationship. And usually when you sort that out, dealing with the resource guarding itself becomes relatively easy. Right. Um, so making sure that the person, for instance, like, so again, let's use the example that my dog um, guards me and shows aggression towards other people. Like I need to make sure that I have the ability to like send my dog away from myself, that I can take control over my personal space. That's going to be a huge thing. And that's when we talk about, you know, I was actually going through this with one of my um, private um, coaching clients on a Zoom call yesterday. They were asking about 
you know, sort of best practices for dealing with hierarchy issues in the house. And one of the things that I look at a lot is the person's ability and how frequently they put boundaries on their personal space. And what we see, uh, we see a huge pattern of this with, you know, um, when people and dogs have an unhealthy relationship where the person never puts a boundary on their personal space, like ever, you know, and this is something that like people, people who put lots of boundaries with other humans in their life, for some reason, struggle to set boundaries with the dogs in their life. Like even my wife doesn't let me like crawl all over her whenever I want to and come into her personal space whenever I want to. Right. And vice versa. Right. Like there's times where we just kind of want some breathing room around us. Even my own children, I don't let to be, you know, all over me whenever they want to. And it's part of how we establish um, our relationships with each other. Right. And we know people in our life. We all know people in our lives that aren't good at setting boundaries. We call those people doormats. Right. Because they let people walk all over them. And the people in our lives that are doormats. Right. They tend to get taken advantage of. They tend to struggle to command the respect of others, right? And they tend to often be more prone to having unhealthy relationships, especially with, with like intimate relationships, right? So it's one of the, the major things that I look at when I'm looking at relationships like this. And anytime there's a, there's a hierarchy issue or just an imbalance in the relationship is I look at how does the person set personal boundaries if they set personal boundaries at all. And more often than not, what we see is that they don't set personal boundaries at all with their dogs. And that even when they try, because they have never done it, their entire existence with the dog, they've never done it. They don't even have the ability to, even if they wanted to. So that becomes sort of one of the first things that we want to start doing is helping these people to have the ability to set a personal boundary, have the ability to say, hey, no, not now. I need you to go away. I need you to give me some space, right? And then once they have that ability, using that ability in these moments where the dog normally might show resource guarding for them to say, hey, you don't belong in my space right now. This is not your space to guard, right? And if, the, if, if we get the person in the position where they can effectively do that, usually the resource guarding just becomes a thing of the past because we've changed the dynamic. We've changed what is basically the root cause of the resource guarding. And so we want to be mindful of that as opposed to looking at this from like a, let's do counter conditioning and let's do, let's do these drills, you know, to deal with the resource guarding itself. Let's look at the cause of the resource guarding and let's make sure we undo that. Because if we don't deal with that cause, we can do the counter conditioning and we can do all these other things, but we're probably just going to have problems crop up elsewhere. Um, and again, one of the easiest ways for a person to claim personal space is to teach them how to use their body teach them how to use, uh, you know, movement and spatial pressure and be upright and use assertive body language. And uh, not to sound like a broken record, but guess what? One of my favorite exercises is for teaching people how to do that is food claiming, right? It's that, that's what that exercise, right? It's, 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 a the, the two main goals of that exercise are to teach our dogs how to react more appropriately when there's something interesting or stimulating in the environment. And then also teach us as humans or get us as humans to be viewed as more assertive in the eyes of the dog. And so it's a great exercise for somebody who doesn't know how to be assertive to give them a drill to kind of practice. Even using the spatial pressure around doorways and thresholds can be a, a useful tool for that. And again, even walking behind can be a useful tool for that. But if they can claim the space around food, it becomes not so much different for them to claim just the space around themselves. So that sometimes, sometimes if they're like sitting on the couch watching television and the dog comes into their personal space for them to be able to stand up and say, nope, not now. I want you to give me broom. And this is different than just telling the dog place, all right, or just telling the dog down or whatever, because we can train those commands really well and get to the point where you can say place in any tone of voice you want to with any body language, whatever, you know, and you just go place and the dog just goes, oh, I know what that means. And they scurry over and they lay on their bed. But that doesn't necessarily make the dog view you as a being who just acted in a very assertive and for lack of a better term, dominant manner. So it's not so much about just the dog going away from us because we can train that as a trick. I mean, I can shape that with 
one of those remote food dispensers, like the treat and train, for instance, right? So just getting the dog to go away from me isn't necessarily going to change the dog's view of me and view of their own status in our relationship. It's how am I going about getting the dog to move away from me? And when we do it in an assertive manner, that's what really starts to shape the relationship. And one of the things I was talking about yesterday um, on that Zoom call with my client is, you know, like one of the most popular things you'll hear, like even if you go to your vet and you're, you, you're you know, the vet thinks your dog is behaving in a kind of dominant manner, usually they're going to tell you to do something along the lines of what's known as nothing in life is free right? Which has to do with like controlling resources. And I think when it comes to reshaping our relationship, I think the concept of nothing in life is free is highly overrated. And one, one kind of quote that I often use is that nothing in life is free is more about leverage than leadership. So it's not a bad exercise. It gives you more leverage for training, right? If your dog has free access to everything in the world, you have very little leverage to reinforce them for the things that you want. But depending on how you're controlling those resources, it may or may not change how your dog views you as far as whether your dog views you as an assertive person, right? So um, I think it's a very overrated concept when it comes to leadership and hierarchy issues. I think we have to look at how are we behaving? How are we interacting with our dog, right? So not just that do we limit our dog's access to space, but how are we limiting their access to space? Same thing with the, with food, right? There's a reason that the food claiming exercise is a different exercise. It's fundamentally different than just teaching our dogs to sit and wait patiently while we put their food bowl down before we, we release them to food. It's a fundamentally different exercise. Both are teaching the dog to use some impulse control around food, but how are we going about that? What is the nature of the interaction between us and the dog? Because relationships are about interactions, right? And so that's, that's kind of what I'm looking at there. And so I, I hope that's helpful. I know it's a little bit of a, of a tangent there, but, but that's, you know, usually with situations like that, I'm looking much more at the relationship itself and how do we adjust the relationship more so than looking at individual exercises or protocols of what to do in the moments of resource guarding. Okay. Let me just scroll through. We've only got a few minutes left. So let me just see um, what other questions there are. And I'll just try and pick and choose a little bit here. Okay. So there's a follow-up question because um, I was mentioning earlier about different types of corrections. I think it's talking that specifically about like the mouthing and stuff like that. Um, you know, there's, so many different kinds of corrections you can use. I mean, so there's, there's like the typical dog trainer stuff, right? Like leash corrections, remote collar, things like that. Um, if you follow me for long enough, you'll know I'm, I'm fond of using squirt bottles. I use squirt bottles a lot. Um, compressed air. There's a few different varieties of products that use compressed air to correct. Um, but like a lot of times you're, you also just have to look at like, what is this dog sensitive to in life? Like is the dog sensitive when it hears loud noises? Well, then I might be able to use something that has a noise, a noise component to it. Like even a lot of the compressed air things have a noise that they make, right? Um, you can use with those dogs, maybe shaker cans or dropping something nearby on the ground, right? Um, you know, it ultimately, I, I try to encourage people to think outside of the typical dog training tools because we don't necessarily need to limit ourselves. And a lot of times, like, I'll just ask the dog's owners, I'll just say, Hey, like, have you noticed anything in your day-to-day -day interactions that like make your dog feel a little bit, you know, feel a little bit submissive or feel a little bit timid that makes your dog sort of back away, make your dog retreat a little bit. Like what does that? Right. I had a client one time who their dog was terrified of a feather duster. Like the dog just hated the, like whatever it was, like the way it moved or something, their dog didn't like a feather duster. And so when we were working on walking behind, I was like, yeah, just carry a feather duster with you. And when you do your spatial pressure, if the dog's kind of blowing you off, just wiggle the feather duster in front of their face. Cause that made the dog retreat. Right. Um, so it literally can be anything. What we're looking at is, is especially when I'm dealing with, you know, something where I want to kind of snap the dog out of something, just, you know, what does the dog kind of react to? Um, you know, when it comes to the regular training tools, I generally use prong collars and e-collars because I that they're easiest to use. They're easiest to sort of temper it and give the right amount of correction for the dog. But we don't necessarily have to restrict ourselves to regular training tools, as long as what we're doing is safe. And as long as we're able to, again, kind of temper the intensity of the correction and make sure that it's appropriate. 
um, for the dog. So. All right, let's see here. Sorry, guys, bear with me while I just read through some of these things. Oh, thank you. That's, uh, that painting is by my father. And actually, if you've um, seen it, when I do these streams from my, my office at work, this is my home office, but my office in the training center has a similar sized painting behind me, but it's a, it's a little more of a winter scene and it's sort of a sister painting to this one. But my dad's an artist. He did that. So thank you for the comments. Okay, so uh, this one here is about OCD. So has a dog starting training um, that does OCD spinning anytime she gets bored, aroused, um, the, any kind of prey driver reactivity with dogs and animals prompts the spinning, any specific OCD tips? Yeah, this usually you can, you can get these things under control quite successfully. It's sort of a three-pronged approach. Um, so the first prong of it is making sure that we're giving the dog enough like instinctual drive satisfaction. Um, a lot of times dogs that develop OCD are dogs that spent a considerable amount of their life in kennels. Um, like there could be a dog that was a rescue and spent a lot of time in a shelter. I've seen it in working dogs who were raised in kennel environments where they spent a considerable amount of their early life in a kennel. Um, and that frustration loads and they have no other way to express it. And that's just the sort of habitual way that they learn to express their energy. So the first thing that we want to do is find ways to like really, really satisfy that drive and energy. And this goes back to something I said earlier in the call where I talked about frustration building drive, right? So somebody earlier in the call said, how do we build drive in a dog? And I said, well, play a little bit and then stop. When it comes to these dogs here in the OCD, we want to do the opposite. We want to do the exact opposite. We want to try as much as possible to fully satiate this drive, right? So as an example, I have a video. It's on my YouTube channel. If you go to um, Tyler Muto on YouTube um, and you type in OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, you'll see a video with a little um, spaniel dog. Um, I think it's a cocker and um, maybe it's a cavalier, but regardless, uh, she had an OCD behavior uh, where she would, it was like a hunting type behavior. They went to Florida at one point, they brought her to Florida and she got obsessed with those little geckos that are all over the place in Florida. And uh, when they brought her back home, because there was no geckos there, but they, she, I guess she tended to see them around like the legs of tables and chairs and fence posts when they were in Florida. So at home, if like she was near like a chair or a stool or a table, she would just obsessively like dig at the leg of that stool, right? And the reason these things become perpetuating is because what's more frustrating than perpetually hunting for something that isn't actually there, right? Like perpetually hunting for something that you can never catch. That's got to be the most frustrating thing in the world. It's the same reason why they say using laser pointers with dogs is a really bad idea because it's impossible for them to catch the laser dot. So it can create an obsession, right? And so with this dog, recognizing that her behavior was sort of manifesting out of like a, a hunting, seeking, searching drive, what we did was we taught her a very, very basic like scent work game, nothing really formal or fancy. We used little cones, but you could use little cups and we would hide food under one, We'd, uh, bring her out of the room, hide food out of, uh, under one, bring her back in the room and start to teach her to use her nose to figure out which cone had the food under it. We eventually taught her to sit when she identified the right cone. But once, once she learned the game, what we did was we'd break her meals into little parts and we would do this until like she didn't want to do it anymore. Like we would just, we would just do, you know, it, it could be just a few pieces of kibble, you know, for each game, but we would just bring her out of the room, let her hunt again, bring her out of the room. But she was always able to resolve the drive, right? The drive was always able to come to its natural conclusion, which is digestion, right? Which is to catch the thing, to find the thing and to digest it. And Again, every day we do it until she'd still have food left, but we'd bring her in the room and she's like, eh, I'm tired of this. I'm bored of this now. Right. So that was step one. Now with a, with a little pit mix, um, you know, you, you could do scent work. You could also express drive through tug work. You could use a spring pole. Some pits are really ball driven. Um, there are a lot of ways you can express drive, even honestly, like, man, like going to the woods like training the dog to be good off leash and being able to take the dog to the woods or out into nature and just let them really just go and let them sniff and search and hunt and do all that stuff can be extraordinarily therapeutic, like really extraordinarily therapeutic. 
So that's that's step one and uh, possibly the most important piece of this puzzle. Step two would be to, to get them under control around whatever types of things tend to trigger that arousal, right? So, um, so for instance, like with the little spaniel, we knew that vertical spindles triggered the OCD. So we would practice a lot of like place command and downstay near or next to vertical things, right? Build her up to that. We didn't just do it on day one of learning a downstay, but you know, just like any other obedience, we teach the downstay, we gradually increase her proximity to the thing that triggers this behavior to the point where she could hold the downstay and be near this vertical thing and, and hold the downstay and not go into that OCD behavior. Um, and if it's, you know, reactivity, obviously doing any protocols to work on the reactivity, you know, there's a number of protocols that we talk about in, in these calls and on the videos that deal with reactivity. And then step three, sort of the final piece of the puzzle is after you've done all of this, and usually we're talking about several weeks of doing all this stuff. And at this point, you should see already a very significant reduction in the OCD behavior, like really, really significant reduction. But there might be a little bit left that still might trigger here and there, right? And so step three is, again, we want to find a very good correction for the dog. And I, I have at the time, at times used um, the bonk technique, which is for those who aren't familiar, uh, we've talked about it before here, but just a rolled up towel with some rubber bands around that you can basically toss at the dog and usually it bops them in the head. And, um, you know, it's just a towel. So we're not talking about like hitting them with a lead pipe or anything, but dogs don't like things flying at them. And it tends to be a very, very effective correction. Um, and I used this correction with the spaniel in that video. And in fact, with her, she was sensitive enough that I think when I did it, I don't even think the bonk, the towel actually even touched her. I think it just sort of hit the ground nearby to her. And that was enough. Um, but basically we would bring the dog into an environment that would normally, you know, have a potential to trigger the OCD. Bear in mind, we've already done all this other stuff. We've had several weeks of giving the dog ample drive expression, several weeks of practicing obedience around the triggers. It's mostly under control. We bring them in an environment. We sort of wait for the behavior to manifest itself. And the moment we see the earliest signs of that OCD, we give a no and we follow through with the correction. And every time I've done this, if you've played your cards right, it really shouldn't take more than a, than a few corrections. And I, I really mean like two to three corrections. The, the, the spaniel in the video, it took one, like literally one one time that I threw that bonk towards her. And I say towards her because I, I, I don't believe it actually even touched her. I never had to do it again. And um, essentially from there, the maintenance was just making sure that we continue to give the dog ample drive expression. So when I sent her home to her owners, um, I taught them how to do the basic like scent game. And we just used plastic cups at her house. And I just told them, you know, when you, uh, you know, if you can, try to aim for doing one of her meals every day with the scent game, you know, break it into a few different portions. So you do a few rounds of her searching and finding the food. And if you can do that, just one of her meals a day, if, if you can't do it one day, not a big deal, but try to make a goal of once a day. And that was our maintenance plan. And that was it. Like that was it for that dog. I never had to do any follow-up training. It was good to go from there. I had another dog, very similar. It was like a shepherd kind of Aussie type mix that was kicked out of a daycare because she would get really OCD with any sort of reflection. So if the sun came through the window a certain way and caused a reflection on the ground, this would trigger this dog to go just totally bananas and spinning around and barking at it and flipping out. And of course that level of arousal would often create problems with the other dogs. And so we did the exact same protocol, same exact thing. I'm pretty sure with this dog, I also used the bonk and I think with this dog, it might've taken two or three actual corrections, but then she was good. She was able to go to daycare, no problems. Um, so that's the way we deal it with it. It's a pretty reliable um, way to go about it. And again, the, the, big, the big issue is um, the drive expression piece of it. Like if you try to just dive in and start correcting the dog and you haven't given them an avenue for expressing their drive, you're probably going to end up having to correct them a heck of a lot more. And one of the sort of overarching themes in a lot of my training is I'm always looking for ways to reduce 
the amount of punishment or correction that's needed, right? I'm of the belief that a certain amount of discipline is almost inevitably going to be necessary, right? It's just like raising children. Um, it's, it's for the average person, like you need to have some, some means of leveraging discipline. Uh, but we, we want to reduce it. We don't want to rely on that 100%. Right. And so that's kind of the, the moral of the story there. So, yeah, I hope that's helpful. So, all right, guys, I'm going to wrap it up there. Um, I hope this was a, this was a relatively smooth meeting, um, without having Jake here to help filter through the questions for me. I think we got to a lot of things. Of course, we can never get to all questions. Uh, we do these meetings twice a month. So if you didn't get your question answered today, definitely, definitely repost it in a future group chat. And we'll make sure that we try to get to everybody as time goes on. All right, guys, uh, we will catch up with you at the next live stream. That's it for today, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to tune in next time when Evan Doggett will be back sharing useful tips to help you and your dog live your best lives together. We'll see you then.